You're listening to Giving a Fuck is the New Black, and I'm your host, Joe Lorenz. Join me and my guests each episode as we endeavour to give several serious fucks and discuss climate change, intersectionality, conscious lifestyle, politics, and of course, sustainability. Today's guest, Frederick Joseph, is an award-winning marketing professional, media representation advocate, and the author of the upcoming highly anticipated book, The Black Friend. As well as this, he is a Forbes Under 30 list maker, was a national surrogate for the Elizabeth Warren campaign, and is also the sole creator of the largest GoFundMe campaign in history, The Black Panther Challenge, which ultimately raised more than 950,000 US dollars and allowed more than 75,000 cool kids from around the world to see the movie Black Panther for free. Frederick has been honoured with everything, including the 2018 Comic Con Humanitarian of the Year Award, and is a member of the 2018 Route 100 list of the most influential African Americans. He consistently writes for cool publications like Huffington Post, USA Today, Now This News, The Independent, amongst others. Yet more than this, he's so importantly been on the front lines of the Black Lives Matter movement and protests in New York City these past few weeks, where he's consistently tirelessly demanding for justice for all black lives. Today, Frederick and I are going to talk about social justice and the perilous realities of cultures of entitlement. And of course, we will be talking about Black Lives Matter. Now, statistics tell us that black Americans are nearly three times more likely to die from the police than white Americans. The recent tragic and needless murder of George Floyd is not in isolation. Eric Garner, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, Corey Jones, Trayvon Martin, the list is endless. The loss of these people's lives are part of a vile, ongoing and systemic problem that we all need to address. So, Frederick, I want to start by getting your take on why you think it was the death of George Floyd that was the final breaking point. Why now? Why not before? Yeah, so I I think that what happened with George Floyd is an amalgamation of things. I think that, you know, that happened during the Trump administration that also happened during COVID-19. So there's a lot of frustrations coming from various angles. Um, and I think that, you know, that made everything boil over. Plus, you know, like, I mean, like one, COVID-19, obviously people are losing their lives, their jobs, but also on just a basic logistics level, people are also home, right? Like mm. people have time, you know, people people can go out and protest every day and it can become their job. Now, um, you know, that's a little bit different from, you know, people being at nine to fives or five to nines and things like that. And then, you know, again, I think, Donald Trump so vehemently embracing and upholding white supremacy is something that we've never seen before. Because ultimately, you know, Trayvon Martin, Tamir Rice, Sandra Bland, Freddie Gray, Akai Gurley, uh, so on and so forth, they all passed while Obama was in office. But, but realistically, um, you know, Obama again, he wasn't upholding white supremacy. He wasn't, you know, he might not have done the things that I would have hoped that he would have done ultimately. But, you know, I think it's it's night and day in terms of, you know, the culture of the White House. Oh, definitely. Um, Yeah. And I don't think anyone could have said, well, actually, it's two things here. Five years ago, would anyone have said that white supremacy would be so in the open right now? I think everyone would say, no, well, I don't know. Or maybe that's just coming from me from a white person's point of view. But, yeah, I think the minute he was voted into office, we all said this is going to happen. I mean, it's a matter of time before everyone goes enough is enough. And there is a revolution against this horrible human being that is um, putting a, a huge stain on a lot of the world. You know, looking at that, 2020 has been a really big year between the catastrophic climactic bushfires in my country of Australia and the ones in Brazil um, to President Trump's impeachment um, and then the spread of coronavirus, like you said, and the consequent light that was shined upon the inequity of our medical systems to now these truly momentous Black Lives Matters protests all over the world and humanity, I guess, waking up to the reality of systemic racism. So I'd like for you to talk to me about why or how you think all these reformist occurrences are kind of linked? Um, you know, I, I think that there's always been this, like, 
So you you know the one person who wears kind of like in, in the movies they wear like the tinfoil hat and they and they say that aliens are coming and then um <laughs> you, you know and, and then you know in those movies the aliens end up coming and they feel gratified like I've been telling you you know um <laughs> I feel like for many of us it's kind of like that right like you know I've been I've been talking about like white supremacy and this through line for you know quite some time um hmm. you know like. I, it never went anywhere, and, and even you know when Black Lives Matter became prevalent um, after the acquittal of um, George Zimmerman, you know right. people were surprised, and I'm like, well, why are you surprised, right? Like, you know, hmm. you look at all the people and officers who have, um, you know, absolutely done heinous crimes against black people. This is like not new at all, you know. In a world where Emmett, mm. Emmett Till's false accuser got to live the rest of her life um, like nothing had happened, yeah, this is not new, um, mm. you know. And and I and I think that to fully um, take a look at the moment and you know the Black Lives Matter movement and stuff like that, I don't even know. Like we were talking about, you mentioned earlier revolution, if, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Mm-hmm. I did. Yes. Yeah, I don't know that it is a tr- it will ever truly be a revolution because to do so you would have to look at all the facets of white supremacy and that means looking at people who um you know in a way you have to look at it in a way that makes you deeply uncomfortable right so like one example mm. one of the most um you know kind of i can call her i guess a karen or whatever um would be nancy mm. nancy pelosi right um you know nancy pelosi while she is a Democrat, like many other Democrats, is extremely anti-black, anti-brown, um, you know, in many ways, anti, anti-feminist. Um, mm. <laughs> and, and, I, and like, you know, people like her, like a Joe Biden, Joe Biden has said, you know, many deeply racist things, um, done many very racist, many, many racist things, rather. Um, but people don't want to hold these people accountable as well. And if you're going to really fight against white supremacy and, and really show that Black Lives Matters, matters um, you're, it's not just a matter of um, Donald Trump. You have to actually look at it from all levels. It's Donald Trump. It's Joe Biden. You know, it's Pelosi. It's Chuck Schumer. It's, it's all these people, right? Like um, the police force in New York only got as militarized as they are in the police forces around the country because of governors. So while everyone's like, praising Governor Cuomo, Governor Cuomo is the person who actually helped uh, militarize them. You know, you got to really look at it. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, it, yeah, white supremacy was around for a lot longer than Donald Trump, just because he's um, really making it obvious doesn't mean it's all on him. Uh, but you're completely right about Pelosi and Joe Biden. I mean, Joe Biden is horrible, really. Uh, it, you know, it doesn't mean I don't agree with some of his politics. Yeah, but some yeah. of the things he said, uh, as you say, are more than questionable. And I think he is the perfect example of performative apology. He says it when he has to, and then he moves on. As an example, when he was, you know, it was brought out that he was doing all these weird things, touching women's hair and doing all that kind of stuff. He then, um, and was doing it to little kids and stuff, the day after he had his kind of bullshit apology, he then made a joke about it on stage with a child. And I think, hello, Joe, did, what part of yesterday's apology had any kind of sincerity if you're willing to do it again and make a joke of it? It's just, and with Nancy Pelosi, again, I agree with some of her politics, but yeah, and you touched on her feminism. Her feminism is just purely white feminism. Doesn't mean that the feminist issues she talks about aren't real and aren't important, but they just fall on a strand of people who are generally very privileged. So it's, it's just top layer stuff and it's not delving any deeper and trying to actually get to the heart of many of the problems in America and indeed all around the world. Right. No, I mean, you're hundred percent correct, you know, and, and you can even look at, and people say like, you know, there's a lot, there's a feeling, especially amongst people who have been oppressed, right? Like, like black and brown people have been oppressed so long that sometimes we're just happy with, um, the bare minimum. Right. And you know, I don't want the bare minimum. I've never wanted the bare minimum. Um, you look at someone like an AOC, who's a phenomenal, you, you know, young politician, um, and she's intersectional, thoughtful. You look at someone like Ayanna Presley, who's you know phenomenal, intersectional, so on and so forth. And you know, with these young, um, you know, Congresswomen, uh, what are they, the big four it was or the four, whatever it was. 
Um, you know, well, Nancy Pelosi historically had said very problematic and almost racist things about them, right? You know, like, um, yeah. you know, these are things that we have to assess because in a world where Ayanna Presley exists, we don't need, you know, someone like Nancy Pelosi representing us. Absolutely not. I, I think, yeah, AOC is just utterly perfect in my eyes. She's Everything that comes out of the woman's mouth is incredible. And yeah, if we push and look towards leaders like that more, then I, I think that that's definitely a glimmer of hope. When looking at, um, when we're talking about kind of uh, political and police and so forth, you know, something that the Black Lives Matter movement is calling for is a, is a national defunding of the police, which I personally love. Mm. Um, where in turn the money could then be invested back into black and brown communities to ensure that black and brown people are not only just surviving, but they're thriving. Um, and now after the success and strengths of the recent and ongoing protests, there are some lawmakers agree. So I just wanted to read a couple of things that I read in The Guardian. In LA, the current police budget is $1.8 billion, and up until recently the mayor, who's a man called Eric Garcetti, have been pushing for raises and bonuses for officers, as well as an overall 7% increase that would have made the budget for more than half of the general fund. However, um, Wednesday last week, or week before, sorry, June 3, he changed his tune and has now said that he's looking to make cuts to the police budget, which is great. However, if we look at your home, the New York Mayor Bill de Blasio is pushing um, to leave the NYPD's nearly six billion budget intact, while at the same time he's actually slashing education and youth programs as well as other agencies by as much as 80 percent. So I just wanted to get your take on national defunding of the police force and how you think it would work. Well, first, I'm absolutely um, a proponent of defunding the police, Um, you know, and I think that it's, I think it's a phenomenal um, idea, you know, in a, in a world where, um, you know, I went to school having to share a textbook with four other people um, while wow. police officers um, were using face scanners and things like that in like a small town. You know, I you know, this is let's just be real. You know, we're, we need to reallocate budget. Um, I think also in, in New York City specifically. There's this idea that, you know, our um, our law enforcement needs to be deeply militarized to combat uh, terrorist threats and things of that nature. But, you know, a, a report came out some years ago that a lot of the money was being wasted and squandered on, on needless things that weren't abs- actually protecting anyone, you know. Wow. And then a big chunk of money from the NYPD every year actually goes to them paying off people who have sued them for their police brutality and harassment, you know? So, um, I, I think in terms of it working, it absolutely would, right? Like would we've seen crime go down tremendously, um, over the last few years in New York. And it wasn't necessarily by the hand of the NYPD again. Um, and that money, should be in communities that if you actually create a pipeline of success, it inherently also um, helps stop crime, right? Like if a person doesn't have to um, go out and rob the store to feed their child, then the crime wasn't committed and you have a child that's fed and you have a child with a bright future. It's a pretty simple concept, you know? Yeah, it it really is. It's not rocket science, is it? It's just um, creating a cycle or getting rid of the poverty trap, really, is part of the problem. But it it also goes back to what you were saying before about, you know, there's the high-level racism, the the open, overt racism, and then there's the smaller things. And I think what defunding the police would help to do was those microaggressions where people are just inherently or the police forces some of them are inherently seem to be afraid of blackness and what that means what do you think about that so i i think that every single system in this world it fears blackness um especially if it's unapologetic blackness um from the police to um you know to 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 lawmakers to the entertainment industry so on and so forth because You know, I feel that being really frank, um, at least in America, a lot of the things that people have here um, and specifically white people um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of the power that people have, specifically the police, is all unearned. Right. Like we Mm -hmm. find that the most talented people, the most skilled people um, 
you know, the people who have actually pulled themselves up from the bootstraps typically are black and brown people here. Um, right. You know, so with that being said, I don't even know that the fear is an actual fear of someone's physical more than a fear of, a, um, you know, one's own inadequacies. Um, and I think that's what you find in the police force oftentimes. Um, you know, these are people who have never had power in their life. Um, they've probably hated black people because of whatever, um, hated brown people as well. And, and, you know, they get in these spaces where they have a little bit of power and they abuse it. Um, you know, so, uh, yeah. I, I think that's very true. And it, yeah, it's the clutching to power where they deeply feel inadequate, as you said, and looking at other people and going, well, that person has got this far. What have I ever done? Um, I'm going to blame them for it, which is obviously so deeply backward. It's not funny. I think, you know, ending systemic racism obviously starts with us all, and by that I mean white people, acknowledging the deep fundamental structural racism that exists within our countries. Um, and more than that, that exists deep within our traditional institutional structures, such as the police force, as we've been talking about, but also obviously within our education systems and um, within our healthcare and medical procedures and methodologies and so on. So I think I'd just like to ask you, how, how do you think we dismantle this systemic beast in a way that is equitable going forward for all people and obviously in turn for the planet as well? I think first and foremost, you start with launching a rocket into the White House now. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm liking that one. That'll work for me. Well, you know, I, I really think that if it is possible, it has to start with the youth. Um, you know, I think that the seeds of ignorance um, begin very early, earlier than some could ever imagine, right? Like, what does it – like, if you've ever seen the people protesting the stay-at-home orders here – They'd have kids out there saying, there is no coronavirus, things like that, right? And it's just seven years old, and they're already starting down this path. So you have to get to people while they still are developing who they are. And and that's part of the reason why, actually, I wrote my first book. Um, You know, I'm looking forward to people reading that um, because, you know, when when I assessed with my, um, my agent where there was, like, a gap in, like, kind of the microaggression, white supremacy, racism conversation space, you know, we saw that it's, it's amongst young people, right? Like, there's plenty of things to read, like, white fragility and how to be an anti-racist and so on and so forth um, for adults. But, like, if you're 13 years old and you don't really want, like, an academic read, you want something a little bit more story-driven, what do you have? Your book. Right, right, and and I and I and I do think that that's how um, you know we begin to actually destroy these systems because the systems will always be there. It's the people who get within the systems that make them what they are. I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I applaud you for that. You know, coming from a mum point of view. I think it's so important to start talking about these things now. I have two little boys, um, Harry, who is six, and Jude, who is five, and we watch the news openly with them every night, and we kind of watch it for hours, which is a bit boring for them, but they're obviously playing and watching and engaging a little bit. And they're asking all about the Black Lives Matters movement and how it's affecting their family in Australia, how it's affecting people that they know that are black. Is this okay? Is this What is this going to mean for them? We discuss climate change with them all the time, and these are just facts for them. And it also means that they can call us out in the future because if we're not discussing enough with them now, there should be no reason for them to turn around later on and say, well, mum, you actually never discussed this with me. And it's just so important to give children this this base from which to grow into thriving humans, not just one narrow-minded human. But more than that, as you said, about the structures within the society and uh, talking to schools and making sure that they're addressing systemic racism. As a parent, I take that very seriously and I'm constantly emailing. Yeah, I mean, that's great parenting. I, I, and I really mean that from the bottom of my heart. You know, I think that I said this the other day. I was doing a um, panel for kids. It was like 100 or 200 kids or something like that. And this, it was set cool. up. Yeah, it was set up by this um, young black um, girl. She's about 12 years old, I believe. Myself and a few other people kind of in like a activist influencer space or whatever. You know, I said, I said, look, all the parents who have their kids on here are doing it right because the same way, and it was mainly white kids, the same way black parents have to talk to black kids about not getting killed by the police and, and, and what it means that somebody doesn't like them because they're black, 
white parents should have to do the exact same thing in reverse so that they're not doing those things to those kids you know exactly yeah exactly right i mean um just having the conversation from one side is pointless and i don't mean to try and compare these two areas but uh I guess I am comparing them, but I'm not saying that the struggles are the same at all. But it's it's also like only discussing uh, rape culture or something like that with young girls. You have right. to obviously talk to young boys about it so they get out of that toxic environment themselves. Exactly. Uh, like 110%. And I think that for me, um, I'm better served because I actually wasn't raised by a man. I was raised by my, my mother and my grandmother. So a lot of... Which is why you're lovely. <laughs> well, thank you. I, you know, I, I do think that it my, my, my worldview has inherently been that of um, an intersectional feminist, right? Like, mm. uh, and that because I, I don't know anything else, right? Like all my bosses have always been women. Um, you know, again, everyone who's ever like, treated me well or mentored me has been a woman um so coming into the world i'm like okay well uh this isn't normal like what do (laughs) you know and i and i think that that's how it has to be um you know for white kids as well you know it's like in a in a a world where um you know even with basic things like the other day sesame street did a thing on racism and i'm like okay it's not hard right It's, it's 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 not difficult like to not just not make your kids racist but to make them anti-racist to be like hey um if you can teach your kids about bullying well racism is bullying really you know yeah exactly right and i i saw that sesame street thing too and god i love them i mean if you think back to i am when i think back to being a kid and watching sesame street it was always fun because obviously it was american accents on television and that was always fun (laughs) but it was always so diverse even back in the 80s it was always inclusive and looking forward i mean it, it is it's not that hard for parents to do the right thing if they choose to do it and like you said before if they put themselves through a little discomfort. You know, it has to be uncomfortable at first because we have to acknowledge the, the, where we are on the sliding scale of racism, but uh, it has to happen if you want to put your best foot forward and you want your children to be humans that are driving the world in a positive manner and not in a fucked up manner. Exactly. I mean, like, that's exa- like literally exactly it. Um, you know, we, we as people need to be... Um, <sighs> completely understanding that we are like actually molding human beings right like and i mean like i'm not a parent but even as someone with a platform i'm helping mold minds right like so the things that i say the things i encourage people to look at read and blah 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 it's so important that they that it's the right things for me you know like it's so important for me that like okay it's not enough to just not be a homophobe you got to be an anti anti-homophobia right it's not enough to like know a few trans people you got to fight for trans rights and you got to really step that shit up you know right i couldn't agree more and you know when talking about how you address and hope to influence young minds it's so true that if you are talking about it then you're controlling the narrative if you're letting other people talk about it then you don't know what is being said to the people that are the young people that are important in your life so Again, that's just why we always make sure that we're the ones controlling that narrative and asking their, answering their questions, because otherwise, who knows what they're being told by other people? This leads me into wanting to talk about specifically about privilege and entitlement. And, mm-hmm. You know, when I look at it, as far as I'm concerned, entitlement is a pandemic in the Western world, especially or perhaps only amongst white cis folks. But um, what are your views on cultures of entitlement and the cyclical problems they create? Well, it's interesting because I, 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 this is the one thing that we might disagree on, and I'll tell you why. I think that mm. entitlement is a major issue, but I think it's an issue in every single community, like every, every, literally every single community. Because, you know, the same way you said, like, you know, white cis folks, actually, you know, the levels of entitlement in, like, even, like, from what I've seen for, like, you know, how white trans folks will get much more opportunities than, like, you know, black and brown trans folks. And even in, like, the black community, I mean, there are, like, there's a lot of people in the black community with old wealth um, in America. You know, people Mm -hmm. with, and even if it's not old, which is people with money and privilege. And I think that, 
you even look at today, so Joe Biden's the, the nominee, and Joe Biden became the nominee for the Democrats basically after winning South Carolina, correct? Right. And that was handed to him realistically by black people in South Carolina, by people like Jim Clyburn, who's a congressman uh, there. But that's part of partially because people were telling Jim Clyburn, please don't endorse him, please don't endorse him, he you know, whatever. <laughs> but Jim Clyburn has a ton of money. Jim Clyburn has hmm. a ton of privilege. And his entitlement to think that he knows what's right for the black community in this country, right, even from his sense of – from his place of privilege, it, it, it's, it's a major issue. So I do think it's an issue um, amongst just about every community. Yeah, I think you're absolutely spot on. It's, it's not something that – is only in one area. I, I mean, I, I see it so much in white people that it's not funny. This really slam your hands on the table kind of um, entitlement. Uh, but you're right. It's not a problem that is only just pigeonholed to one uh, race of people. It's everywhere. And it does come down to levels of privilege and levels of power and all the rest of it. But yeah, it's, it is perilous, though. And I, I, I find it I see it so much in Australia. I see it probably more in America. And that's not to say that I think that America is worse or better or anything than the rest of the world. But the, the, the very fundamentals of America is founded on liberty. And it's such a huge thing in America. Yeah, I mean, you know, founded on liberty for some. Uh, yes. <laughs> and, 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 but I, and, and, and to the point of entitlement, though, I mean, I, I get what you're saying. It's like the, the Amy Cooper entitlement to, like, the police, right? Like... Um, Absolutely. Right. It's like, okay, um, I don't like this black guy or I want to say he's he's a he's frightening. Therefore, my entitlement as a white woman is that I get to call the police and they get to come kill him. Yeah. Like, I, I, I hear that. I think also hmm. it's weird because, like, you know, there's this nuance um, to it that I just have an interesting vantage point um, to. Right. It's like, for, for example, um, I got into an argument with somebody on Twitter, of course, um, a little while ago, um, verified black person um, who's like, oh, you just want to complain um, about everything, blah, 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 about, you know, the what happened today. And, and we're going back and forth. And then because the person has privilege, um, somebody chimed in. The person actually contacted Twitter and got the person's account restricted right right because because that it does exist not as often but like when you get to these like levels of privilege and power within like other communities including the black community people Mm. use it like white people because it's Mm. training in white supremacy it's conditioning and what they've seen white people do to them and they do it to others so so true it's just like you said it's a form it's just all bullying it's this Uh, I guess, innate and horrible human trait where we feel like we have to beat our own chests and be ahead of the pack in one way. And it's repulsive, isn't it? It's absolutely uh, disgusting. And And I do think that that is one of the first things that we need to tackle as as a society is how we, you know, snuff out some of that 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 entitlement. I think it's actually only getting worse um, with the, you know, the new social media culture and things like that. Mm. Yeah. I completely agree with that. It it becomes very, you know, people are in their clans and I'm doing this and you're going to back me or not because this is my privilege and my right and I have to do that. It's You see it across social media all the time. Um, just taking a step back to the, the use of the word liberty, and I, I just did air quotation things there. Really. <laughs> um, you know, it's it's obviously a big thing in America, and as you rightly said, built on liberty for some only. Um, if you look at the way that America is structured, you know, the constitutional freedom of speech and freedom of press, etc., and all meant to be without interference or condemnation, yet the very definition of liberty is 100% clouded by race and gender and sexual preference and poverty, so mm-hmm. I, I'd like to find, you know, for you to say how you personally define liberty in a modern America. Oof. Um, Take oof. that. Yeah. Um, oof, oof. Um, <laughs> how I personally define liberty in a modern America. I'd say liberty in a modern America. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm kind of like a social socialist, communist kind of mixed of anarchist. <laughs> yeah, I'm there with you on that. <laughs> um, 
I think right now something that's like feasible um, liberty would be everybody feeling like they could make it that they're gonna make it home when they leave for the day yeah it's just that simple right yeah like everyone feeling like I'm going to work or I'm going to the store or this and that there and 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 firmly like having the idea that they're gonna make it home that night right like I don't have to worry that I'm gonna be in the park and and the officer's gonna be called to me and and choke me to death right like I don't have to worry um, you know that I'm gonna get a call that my eight-year-old brother was playing with a a water gun and a police officer shot him you know yeah it's just um, breaking it down to fundamental human rights and the thing that so so many people take for granted you know you will have people that will see that on the news and shake their head and say oh my gosh that's horrible and then they go and make make themselves a cocktail they don't go beyond that disbelief and that the disbelief is what enables this cycle because unless people are owning the fact that this is happening within their own backyards then there's no momentum forward exactly i mean i think contrary to freedom of speech the president has tried to violently suppress the black lives matter movement with the military and as you were saying before the militarization of the police although that's not just him doing that of course while we know that Climate protesters, Extinction Rebellion and so forth, they haven't had such brutality towards their protesting, which leads me to want to talk a little bit more about the layers of privilege that um, were in, are within these movements around the world. Yeah, and So yeah, if we look sure. at Black Lives Matter, we look at Extinction Rebellion, how, how can we dissect these layers of privilege to make the movements more intersectional? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting in that um, even even now, like it's a beautiful thing, but it's also just like the epitome of privilege, right? Like I was out the other day, and white people have been doing this a lot. Um, you know, white people were moving to the sides of the protest and the front of the protest, so officers wouldn't be able to hit um, black and brown people, right? Um, mm. And I think that that's one way of starting to make things intersectional um, is that if you're going to be in this movement, don't just reap the benefits. Actually, put stake in the game, you know, skin in the game rather and use your actual privilege physically, right? Um, I think also understanding that everybody has a role, you know, um, to be quite frank, uh, there's a lot of movements within this big social justice movement, right? There's the movement for, you know, trans women, there's the movement for black lives in general, there's the move, all sorts of things, feminist movements, blah, blah, blah. Um, I think everybody has to understand their role, right? Like, in a feminist movement and moment that is intersectional, I have to have the role of, you know, a cisgender uh, heterosexual man who knows when to shut up, right? Like, right. who knows when to shut up, who knows when to make space, who knows when to not take up space. And that's the same thing that I think that white people have to have. For instance, for a Black Lives Matter mo- moment, right? Like, I don't really want to. S- I don't. I don't want to see white people interviewed. I don't care what your thoughts are on this. Like, it doesn't uh-huh. make a difference because you're not the ones being, um, you know, murdered in the street, right? Um, the same way again. Like, I don't want to hear um, the thoughts of uh, heterosexual. Um, if if we're talking about pride, like why, right? Like we don't, hmm. you know, we don't need. Um, if you want to be an ally or an accomplice or a co-conspirator or any of those buzzwords, um, it doesn't mean that you need to also be seen. Absolutely, passing the mic. I mean, it's a phrase that we're hearing a lot at the moment, but it's it's so incredibly true. You don't need to stand up on stage and say, "Hey, I have an opinion on this," if it doesn't affect you personally. If it's not, and I, I'm not usually using this phrase, but if it's not in your lane, so knowing when to amplify the voices of others and just shut the fuck up. Right. Exactly. I mean, and I think that there are a few things that I'm I I, I think I'm good at, and I. And I believe that that's one of them. You know, I'm just like, you know, shut up. <laughs> You're a good shutter-upper. <laughs> I try. <laughs> <laughs> For the record, though, I give um, you permission to speak on behalf of women because you you obviously know what you're talking about. And again, credit to your mom and grandma and all the rest of the women in your world. Um, now, just wanted to talk about racial justice and climate justice. Obviously, these things are fundamentally linked. Yep. If we look, um, our Indigenous folks have been having their land stolen, extracted from, polluted upon, etc. for years. 
So again, how can we take the bold work of one movement to bolster the other to achieve collective social justice goals for all people and the planet? Well, I think that, you know, it's it's difficult, and this is an understatement, obviously, but it's, it's difficult being black and being oppressed and being brown and being oppressed because it's so insidious and so layered, right? Like, mm. most people, like, if, if we're worried about, like, getting gunned down in the street by police officers, it's hard to also then focus on climate justice, right? Like, Absolutely. You know, um, but I think that what we need is to make them I, to make them all intrinsically tied um, often, right? Like when we talk about um, justice, I think that we need to come up with like five key justice areas, and everybody needs to kind of align with them together. It could be like, you know, right now it's like, oh, defund the police. All right, great. So while we're doing that, can we also say? Um, you know, whatever the things are right now for climate justice, right? Like there, if there's something happening huh. specifically. And then if it's like also this and also this, and these are the five points together, we want them all at the same time. Because I feel like you have like a, a group of people fighting in these different spaces um, yeah. and they are all so deeply linked, right? Like you look at Flint, for instance, um, uh-huh. you know, that is a climate justice issue right it's a it's a systemic racism issue and that has led to people committing crimes which then becomes um you know a over policing issue um which you know then becomes a education issue because kids aren't getting adequate water and food you know it, it's so and, and I, I just think that you know again you mentioned aoc earlier she does a really good job of doing what i'm saying right like like tying all these things together and weaving them together because they are all one major issue um, mm. as a whole. Um, and I just think that we need to be better about doing that. I think that's so perfectly put. It, it's all a cycle. And so when we're, we're fighting for one area of social justice in a silo, we're missing the other parts of the cycle and therefore we can never really get any true momentum. Like you said, if we're going to defund the police, then we should also be looking to ask for funding for the EPA and that kind of thing. So kind of balancing, you know, these list of demands. I love that approach. I think that's really clever. I I think that that's actually it, you know, and that's what we're seeing right now working with um, this current Black Lives Matter moment is that people have like a key demand, like people who are like, no, we don't just want reform. We want revolution, defund the police, mm. you know? The whole thing. I, I couldn't agree more. Let's do it. Now, I've got a question, which I think it's a bit of a funny question, but I, I like to ask it anyway. Uh, what cultural or political question do you think someone really needs to ask you that they haven't yet? Ooh. Um, you know what I never, no one ever asked me, like, and it sort of came up today. So I did an interview with NBC today, and we and we were talking mm-hmm. about the. Um, I hope you told them you were um, talking to me afterwards. <laughs> of, <laughs> but but of course, and they, and they were like very happy that they were able to get me because you know obviously if I'm, <laughs> if I'm here, um, but um, you know they asked a question about how racism and white supremacy take a physical toll, not in the sense of being murdered. Right, but like the physical stress toll of living in this mental and emotional oppression for your entire life. So, well, that was that's that I, I just answered your question. I don't know if you have a follow up actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, okay. So, the, the follow up really just is the question that they ask how do, you, how do you respond? So, in that, I'll say that there was one part of it that I didn't bring up, so I'm gonna give you the part that I didn't bring up, right. So I'm mm-hmm. someone who lives with multiple sclerosis, right? Um, you know, I'm immunocompromised, someone who physically has a pretty difficult life at times. I, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, I'm black. And like that means that whatever else is going on, I have to be able to fight for black people. And I think that that is, um, you know, the, the toll of blackness. And, it, and, it, and it's a toll that, bears heavy on the complete physical like so i'm sick obviously Mm. so um i put being black before my sickness i put being black before uh covid19 i put being black before all these things um but also because i'm just so used to stress i'm so used to the trauma i'm like oh like 
I'm not feeling well today for my MS, but I'm going to go protest because this is regular. This is what I do. You know, I've always mm-hmm. done whatever I have to do versus um, just because I'm black, you know. So I, I think that that physical toll, I think the stress of white supremacy puts so many black people in the grave long before their time, you know. Um, and it's not just with bullets. It's just the heart, you know. Yeah, the the toll of society just seeing you as as one thing. I I was actually speaking to, as you know, I saw my mum last week, mm-hmm. and I was speaking to her about a similar thing. We were discussing all of this, and she she's a disabled woman, and she just says that the toll of being disabled is a consistent thing. There's not one second where she forgets that she's not disabled because all of society is set up for able-bodied people. Right, right. I mean, like. It's like that being black. All of society is set up for white people. Exactly. A hundred percent. Yeah, that's exactly the conversation she and I were having, that people that a white person, an able-bodied white person doesn't see that until it's pointed out to them in the same way that an able-bodied anyone person doesn't necessarily look at an area and go, this isn't great for disabled people because they don't see the stair over there or they don't see the tiles that might be slippery or they don't see that because they're not used to navigating and adjusting their lens for that view. Exactly. I mean, that's just so well put. Yeah. No, you can thank Jane Hamilton, my wonderful mother, for that perspective. And I was like, yes, mom. Right. (laughs) She's a clever one, that one. Now, crystal ball gazing, uh, what do you think the Black Lives Matter movement looks like in 10 years' time? I think it depends upon... I'm going to be honest. Mm. I think that if Biden wins, the Black Lives Matter movement goes backwards. Or stays stagnant. So it depends upon the election um, in November. Uh, so that's not really an answer, but I can tell you what, I, what, what the catalyst for whatever happens will be. Mm, I, I hear that. And uh, this is not going to happen. But what do you think would happen if Bernie was the president? <sighs> well, if Bernie was the president, I think that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement um, would have done would have gone leaps and bounds. You know, um, I think a lot of the things that we were fighting, we've been fighting for would happen far easier. Um, I think that it would be a renaissance of progressivism, um, mm, you know. And I love it, that. Yeah, and it, ultimately, obviously, that's not happening. But, um, but yeah, no. you know, um, but I do, you know, again, to kind of like, for anyone who hears this and not to, 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 for people who want to hear my point about Biden, I think that the reason why you get certain moments of a, a fight for justice, equality, equity, so on and so forth, is because it comes out of, you know, that kind of like, it's darkest before the dawn point, right? And Donald Trump is that. So, mm-hmm. you know, when you have a person who's very moderate, very, um, you know, uh, basic run-of-the-mill in office a lot of the people who are fighting for black lives matter right now like especially white people are going to feel like the fight is done you know um we got trump out of office and like you said earlier white supremacy didn't start um nor will it stop with trump but um but if you have a symbol for white supremacy when that symbol is gone you're going to falsely assume that the work is not needing to be done anymore but you know, you see, you saw the same thing with Obama, right? Like, George Bush was a horrible president because he was so horrible and white is the only reason you got Obama. Had George Bush been a little bit better, you probably wouldn't have ended up with Barack Obama. Um, you had to have mm. something really terrible to get him um, in that moment. And then after Barack Obama, um, you know, things became obviously so bad with Trump, but if they... It, if they seemingly on the surface are not as bad, then again, people will kind of pitter off. So true. Obama was really sandwiched by some beauties, wasn't he? Um, But (laughs) I I think talking about that, the symbolism of it, again, uh, that is so true. And people tend to stop doing the work when they think that they have fulfilled the symbol. Like, for example, the black square that everyone was posting last week on social (laughs) media. And it just, you know, what is this performative shit about? Okay, if you're going to post a black square and uh, say solidarity and things like that, 
tell us what you're going to do or follow up the next day with a post that talks about your actions that you're taking, your accountability, um, what you're pledging to do go forward. I think it was such a waste of space and time. And I mean, so many folks, I think, did it for the right reasons. But again, they're just not used to holding themselves accountable. And that's it. And like, honestly, you know, like I said earlier, um, it exists in all communities, right? Because I just saw it in hmm. the... Um, in the black community, people were like, you know, and I've been very critical of this. People were like, oh, you know, um, make sure you come buy something from my black owned business. Now, obviously, there's disproportionate wealth issues in America and um, around the world. You know, that's not new, but we're also fighting police brutality right now. And um, oh. some someone buying your lotions are not going to, um, you know, fix that issue. Uh, so. <laughs> Lotions against supremacy. Right. Lotions against supremacy. Indeed. The new hashtag to go viral any minute now, no doubt. Indeed, indeed. (laughs) All right. Now, we're on to the 13 quick short answer questions and I'll fire at you if you are ready. All right. All right. Let's do it. Home city. Uh, New York. I didn't know that. Okay. Favorite city. Uh, New York. (laughs) Okay, good. Very New York answer. I love it. Um, define your personal attitude in three words. Uh, thoughtful, insecure, and cocky. <laughs> I like the the, the opposite thing going on there. That's good. Um, well, not opposite, but you know what I <laughs> yeah, mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, style icon. Style icon. Mm, yeah, well, um, in terms of – I'll give you two. So in terms of like persona style, Malcolm X, in terms of like mm-hmm. actual style um, – Probably like David Beckham. I like that. So if we could have Malcolm X with a few more arm tattoos. Yeah, yeah. Get Malcolm X with some arm tattoos, kind of like a little hair <laughs> fade and some, uh, well, some um, some pretty uh, tailored suits. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. I like that Malcolm X very much. Okay. Your tips for a more equitable planet. Defund the police. Abolish ICE. Um make AOC president and <laughs> um, <laughs> and also um, reparations. Perfect. Okay, words to live by or your favorite quote? Ooh, I actually, can I read like a whole quote to you? Yeah, please. Okay. Uh, For what it's worth, it's never too late or in my case too early to be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Stop whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. We can make the best or we can make the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. And I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you've never felt before. I hope you meet people with a different point of view. I hope you live a life you're proud of. And if you find that you're not, I hope you have the strength to start all over again. I love that. Who's that by? Um, so that's from my favorite movie, um, Benjamin Button. I'm not sure like who the writer is, but, um, okay. What is the favorite aspect of your work? Uh, the favorite, my favorite aspect of my work is, um, meeting people who have been impacted by it. Um, you know, and and I, and I guess I do a myriad of things. Um, but like whether it's someone saying like, Oh, I, I, I read this article and Oh my God. Or if kids are like, I was one of the kids that got to go do this or, you know, like all these different, I was helped by this campaign or, you know, we weren't going to have, you know, money for X, Y, and Z. And, you know, it's just always something. And that makes me really happy. It should. And good for you. Um, what is your favorite drink? Uh, liquor. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, please. Uh, Give me two. Yeah, I'm a I'm a um I'm a I'm a Callan person, so I, I like a good um, McAllen meat. All right, um, what's well, you said this, but what what's your favorite movie or book? Uh, uh well, Benjamin Button. Um, second favorite is Malcolm X. Uh, favorite book? Ugh, my favorite books. Um, I do not. The suggest- Black Friend. Yes, the Black Friend. Uh, the the books that I loved growing up, I cannot suggest to anybody anymore. Um, <laughs> so. <laughs> We're not doing transphobia around here, so ugh, God, J.K. Rowling. Ugh. Anyway, I know it's such a shame. I'm in my head. I'm like, can I separate Harry Potter from J.K. Rowling? And the reality is, I can't. Right, I, like, ugh. Okay, three people you want at your dinner party, and why? Uh, three people I'd want at my dinner party. 
and why? Oh, this is such a good one. Again, Malcolm X, Angela Davis, um, Whitney Houston. Oh, keeping it interesting. I love it, Whitney. Yeah, yeah. That'd be really interesting. I think there'd be um, a lot of uh, varying viewpoints and, you know, drinking and... Yeah, and, and, and the rest. I love yep, it. Yep, and the rest. <laughs> <laughs> um, three things always found in your luggage. Oh, um, a blazer, a gold watch, and a baseball cap. I like it. I like that. Now I know what you'll be wearing later on today. Oh, hold on. You're, <laughs> it's nighttime there. Tomorrow. Okay. Um, when you're not working, we'll find you where? working um, <laughs> when, when I'm not working you'll find me at the gym okay good okay this is the last one so lastly what is your advice for someone looking to improve their understanding of systemic racism I think that for someone trying to better understand systemic racism you have to first allow yourself to understand that systemic racism is kind of like the matrix in that if you didn't understand it before, when you start learning it, it actually is so deeply woven into every single facet of our society that you have to be prepared for that. Um, you have to be someone who doesn't want to push back, someone who just wants to learn because um, you know it's going to be hard for you to find out that every show you ever loved growing up, every book that you've read, everything that you've eaten, everything that you've worn, every every decision that you've made has been inherently in some part impacted um, or influenced by systemic racism. That's a crazy good analogy. It's all down to the blue pill. Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh my God, that's good. I love that. Look, thank you so much for your time and your work and everything you do and for fighting a damn good fight and if there's anything that um i can do for you anyone i know can do for you my husband could do for you please let me know frederick you're your star and we really love what you do i appreciate it and you two are phenomenal and just thank you for being who you are and always lifting the people um that you can um you are a, a exemplary examples of what i hope um more uh, non-black people um, start to trend towards. Thank you, and I'm definitely not editing that out. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Giving a Fuck Is the New Black. Today's show was hosted by me, Joe Lorenz, produced by Lucy Lucraft, and brought to you by Conscious Citizen Co. If you've enjoyed today's show, please remember to subscribe via iTunes. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest or get in touch with me, then please head to our website, ConsciousCitizen.co. Until next time, folks, please consider giving a couple of fucks. Yeah.